everybody, and welcome back to A Trip Through the Movies. I am Brianna McCann. And I'm John Blinn. How you doing today, John Blinn? I'm doing pretty great. Um, I was a little nervous, you know, when we when we went home, we, we parted ways from school <laughs> there for a little bit. You know, I, I wasn't sure if we were going to be able to do A Trip Through the Movies for a little bit. Mm-hmm. But you know what? We're back in action right now, yep. and it is good to be back. Back and better than ever. Better than ever. You're raising the bar, Brianna. I really, I'm raising the bar. Well, you told me before we started this that this was maybe your favorite one we've watched thus far. Yes, and do you care to tell them which one this is? Absolutely. So we watched A Matter of Life and Death from 1946. Oh, I love this movie. <laughs> you know, she, she, she may not sound like it right now, but Brianna was foaming at the mouth to talk about this movie. <laughs> Yeah, actually, very true. Well, you told me this is what, your your third favorite movie? Yeah, I have a very, the, the best way to explain this is my like top five favorite movies are very solid. I know the top five, but the order changes a lot. And this one is frequently number one. Um, it's typically always within the top three, but sometimes it's number one. It's in the top five, at the very least. Well, then I guess the next logical and simplest question to ask is, Brandon Ken, why? Why? You know, that's such a, a hard question because I feel like a lot of it is tied to, you know, the first time I watched it was one of just like the most magical experiences I've had watching a movie that I was just watching it. And I, it was, it, I mean, I'm going to sound like such a, such a hippie here, but it took me to like another plane just watching this. Like I was so transfixed by it and it has just remained a movie that it's kind of like my comfort movie. Like I've watched it, you know, in times when I've really been having a hard time and it's always just, you know, something about it really captures your imagination and it captures your heart. And it's so funny. It's so sweet. It's just, I mean, it's pure magic. That's, that's the best word for it. I think. I really like, and you know, you mentioned you sound like a hippie there. I I don't (laughs) think so. Right. Because this movie really enjoys playing on, that abstract idea of different worlds mm-hmm. and different realms. And it even right at the beginning, it, it flashes up some text that says, you know, even the resemblances of our world in this movie aren't meant to be like, it's not our world. So it's, it tries very hard to sort of put you on that different plane mm-hmm. of thinking and just immerse you in this completely abstract world. I don't know if abstract's the right word for it because there are some very there are a lot of things that aren't overly abstract in this movie. But it's it's great and I think that that's a really good way to describe it. Uh I loved it. And I think that you know, I mentioned on all the episodes before we started recording, we've done, you know, quite a few movies right, right now. I'm, we're getting cl- probably close to 10. Yeah. Which, you know, it, it's a decent amount. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of movies. <laughs> <laughs> so I really liked Godzilla. And for the longest time, that original Godzilla movie was probably my favorite. But A Matter of Life and Death is really giving it a run for its money. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> There's so much to love. The, the comedy in this, in this movie, it's written in such a simple and clever way where I, I love that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, I think of Airplane. Anytime I see that, because it was just sort of the first movie that I saw with that style of like witty writing. Mm-hmm. And even though it was years and years later after movie, movies have been doing this for forever. But anytime I, I see that style of comedy just consistent throughout a movie, it makes me think of Airplane. And it, of course, puts me in a good mood because who doesn't love Airplane? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so th- th- it had that going for it. Seeing what they were trying out technically was really cool. There's a lot of cool history behind this movie. Everyone involved acting-wise seemed to be having a great time. Like, it's just fantastic. Mm-hmm. It, 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 I, I can't give it enough justice um, right now. Maybe as we go throughout the episode, we'll, we'll really <laughs> we'll we'll really expose what, what's, so much, what's uh, the, the things to love about this movie. But it's great. And I think that it came out at sort of a, a perfect time mm-hmm. for what it was going for. I don't think you could tell a better story with this plot at a, at a better time. You know, it, mm-hmm. had this come out maybe 10 years later, it wouldn't have had the same effect. It wouldn't be as powerful. Had it come out 10 years before, it may have been more powerful in some of the messages, but, you know, if the, the anti-war messages and things of that nature, but it also would have the comedy would have been, you know, it wouldn't have made sense to be in there. Right. So right. I feel like this is just one of those movies, right place, right time, right people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So with that being said, I, I think we, uh, you, I think you should explain <laughs> uh, sort of the general idea of the plot for this movie. Sure. So I will, I will read the letterbox summary just to kind of keep me in, in control here and explaining this. When a young airman miraculously survives bailing out of his airplane without a parachute, he falls in love with an American radio operator. But the officials in the other world realize their mistake and dispatch an angel to collect him. I think if this movie was made in 2021, uh, he would have, you know, bailed out of his plane, but then fallen in love with a with a podcast host. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I'll take that. <laughs> And this is one of those movies that hasn't wasn't really inspired by um, by any one source. You know, we have we've done a few movies here that have been inspired by novels, and novels I, I think mostly has been the one that we've seen the most. This one wasn't the, the case that way. Um, this movie was inspired by a lot. So one of the biggest purposes behind this movie was to repair. English relationships and American relationships. So this movie comes out in 1946, and you may think that, you know, we just been in World War II at the time, and it's kind of weird that relationships were sort of rocky because, you know, there you, you had to work together, right, to get to get this job done. The the heaviest job in the world at that time, and one of the heaviest jobs in the world to today. Uh, was what was going on in World War II and just having to go through that. So you'd think that that would sort of act as like a, you know, sort of cohesive between the nations right now. But, you know, there's also a lot of tensions that come with that. You see a lot of bombings going on in certain parts of Europe that you didn't see so much in the United States. And it feels like, oh, you know, Europeans are like, yeah, the United States is kind of sitting out. Not necessarily, obviously. I'm just sort of trying to create the image of there's a lot more tension here then I, I think we we really realize today because we didn't live through that. And as far as I've been alive, there haven't been any noteworthy alliances like that. We, we have alliances with other countries, obviously, but not to the extent that we, we saw here. I there, could just yeah, start. Yep, okay. you're good. Yeah, that's a really, really great point, John. That you know, idea of, of Anglo-American relations following the Second World War is such a key piece of this. And I think it's... It's one that's important to keep in mind before going into this movie, because if not, that whole kind of 
big piece of the third act is going to seem really kind of random. Um, they play it up from the beginning, so it does, you know, kind of connect, but it makes a lot more sense when you know this. But there's some really interesting other things that they play with in this movie. There are just so many things going on here. And one of the big ones is the use of Technicolor versus black and white. So as we talked about in the summary, there's this idea of the other world, which isn't necessarily like given the name of, of heaven, but it's just this kind of like after life in general. And so what's really cool about this movie is it really bucks a lot of traditions. So the real world, you know, that we see on earth is this super vibrant technicolor. Everything is beautiful and luscious and just insanely gorgeous like this this technicolor is unlike anything you've ever seen truly uh powell and pressburger were like masters of that but what's interesting then is instead this afterlife is very sleek it's modern and it's all black and white and that's really kind of of bucking that idea of oh the real world is you know bleak and dull and heaven is this beautiful you know colorful place it's really placing this emphasis on the joy of being alive and on the beauty of the world around us uh, versus, you know, this very kind of bureaucratic, which not necessarily in a bad way. Like they don't, they don't necessarily portray that afterlife is like a bad place. It's just different, you know, in, in a lot of ways in that sense. And so it's really, really interesting to see the way they kind of shift between this technicolor world and this, you know, black and white modernist other. And there are a lot of cool scenes where they even switch between that, like in the middle of the scene, uh, which leads to some really, really beautiful, cool shots. Um, and it's really, you know, we'll, we'll kind of get more into some of the details of that other world as we go through the summary, because that's, that's when it's really important. But it really does kind of tie into this idea of you know, the joy of being alive, which is important, as John mentioned earlier, you know, right place, right time, you're coming out of World War II, and that was, you know, the most devastating conflict the world has ever known. So to kind of go in with this idea of, you know, what life can be beautiful, even after all of that, is is really great, you know, and this comes kind of in that host of movies following World War II that put that emphasis back on maybe life is good, but maybe with a slightly darker tone. You know, you think of, of Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life, where, you know, it's about the joy of being alive, but it comes through a pretty dark context of Jimmy Stewart's about to kill himself and then finds out, you know, maybe life is worth living. And this ties in really, really, really well with that movie in particular, but just in general, kind of the post-World War II um, attitude, really. It's sort of interesting to, to sit back and look at what's going on in American film at this time. And I found an article from The Guardian that really sort of summed this up in a really good way, and I, I think that it's worth noting because, for, especially through, as we've probably mentioned on the show before, Brianna and I took a film history class, and you tend to notice through movies like Godzilla and et cetera, there's a, a cultural response every time there's war. And it becomes very apparent through these movies. And what seemed to be the response in American film at the time was this introduction of time travel themes, uh, melodrama, divine, supernatural intervention, all sorts of stuff like that. And it's something that I hadn't really thought about. And as you mentioned, It's a Wonderful Life, you know, same thing. Uh, 
Alfred Hitchcock just produced Spellbound, uh, directed Spellbound is, is what I should say. Uh, I think it was the year before this movie came out. If not, it was close, and I apologize. And um, there was also Heaven Can Wait, which comes out in 1943, which isn't after the war, correct? No, that's the yeah. middle. Yep. But you see these themes coming to life, and it's, it's interesting. I don't know why this is the response at that time. Um, obviously, all of these have to deal with you know, the ideas of life and death. That's obvious. You know, you're, you're going through the most violent war up until that time. Um, and, or at least it felt like it to the Americans. For whatever reason, I, I feel like looking back, when you look at World War II, it always feels so much more engaging to the Americans yeah. than World War I did. Mm-hmm. Not to say that one was worth, worse than the other. Right. Um, but it, it just feels like there was a, there was a heavier impact mm-hmm. in World War II. And that's yeah. probably with the, you know, developments in media and things of that nature. And all, the only thing that's on the minds of Americans is this, you know, you, you sort of second, you keep in the back of your mind how fragile life and death really are. Um, so I, I just think that's really important to take note of is that this little, this decade, I would say probably, because things start to get upbeat mm-hmm. right. in the next right. decade. Um, this decade in particular, you sort of see a sub, I don't want to say genre, but an era mm-hmm. of itself. You also mentioned that Technicolor stuff, which is the coolest part <laughs> to demonstrate this uh, life and death tug mm-hmm. that we, we sort of talked about in this World War One, post-World War One, uh, recently post-World War or World War II, I'm sorry, uh, atmosphere. And this is introduced right off the bat very uniquely. Uh, so we have Powell and we have Pressburger, and they're referred to as uh, the Archers which I think that they have big bro energy, (laughs) these two. They do. Because I didn't know this until I started reading into them. I saw this at the beginning with the the archers thing, and I was like, okay, that's probably – I don't know what that's all about, but okay. And then I find that it's the nickname for these two directors and screenwriters and producers, and they just call themselves the archers. Like – I, I just would have loved to, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. It's just it's just such a guy thing, it feels like. Like, they were just hanging out. It's like, I, I know there's a reason that they go by the archers, but it feels like they're like, what if we just called ourselves the archers? Because they're like, oh, we can't be Powell and Pressburg. Like, that doesn't roll off the tongue too well. You know what I mean? Like, yes. it just seems like this goofy conversations between two close guy friends. And I love that. Um but so because of that name, there's an arrow that just shoots into a target and the target starts off black and white. And as soon as the arrow hits, it brings in this wave of color. And suddenly we see that the target that was shot by the, the arrow is blue and red and white and dark blue. And immediately you sort of realize, oh, OK, they're doing something here because it wouldn't have started off black and white if they... They wouldn't have just thrown the color in there, in there like that had this not been an important role mm-hmm. in, in the movie. So I think we should talk a little bit more about Powell and Pressburger uh, because they're two very talented people, and they just seem like really close friends. Uh, and uh, again, we're going up till the point of the movie. I've said it on this show a thousand times before. I'll say it again. That way, you know, if we see them down the road, we get that full <laughs> story there too. So... 
They're a British filmmaking partnership, uh, together often known as The Archers. And that was also the name of their production company, hence why it's at the beginning of the movie like that. You know, they're not just like, at the beginning of the movie, yeah, we directed this. <laughs> um, they made a series of influential films in the 1940s and 1950s. Their collaborations... Oh, important, important thing to mention here. Because we've talked about the difference between American and English relationships at this time with the tensions rising there. I was talking a lot earlier about American film. This is British made. And, and <laughs> I, I apologize if I, if I misled you there. Uh, but the themes are very similar. Yeah. And the country is going through the same things. Mm -hmm. So, wow. Yes. Um, <laughs> completely led astray there. I'm just thinking, you know, when you think World War II, there's that strong sense of, na uh, sense of nationalism. Mm -hmm. And my, my brain wandered. But all of the things I said still apply to the UK <laughs> at that time. Uh, the media... The, you know, growing there, obviously, I, I I will not back down on this hill. Everything <laughs> I said applies to the English as well. You're good. Which is important because, you you know, you'll sort of see that they're not so different after all towards the end of the movie. Though. Um, they released 24 films between 1939 and 1972, and they were mainly derived from original stories, which is cool because, as I mentioned, you know, we see novels being uh, made into films early on in film history and a lot of people complain you know even now well especially now no reboots no original material stuff like that so seeing this there really cool um especially considering how surprisingly early it had started so powell started off uh he was the more experienced guy he worked his way up uh, making silent films to first world war dramas uh, including The Spy in Black in 1939. And he made his first film for Hungarian producer Alexander Korda. And I think I pronounced that correctly. Mm -hmm. Now, you'll sort of see where the, the roads cross here. Pressburger came from Hungary in 1935, and he also worked for Korda. And he was asked to do some rewrites for that film, Spy in Black. And the collaboration just kicks off right there and they moved they made two more films uh well powell did for corda and then he reunites with pressburger so the, the, you sort of see th there it, it, justice is not done in, in this in the, the way that this is described because you can only imagine the chemistry that these two had to have to immediately just kick off this duo of success in terms of filmmaking mm -hmm. um so that's fantastic they go on for, you know, 19 more years after this. And um, one of those films that they, they go on to make is their first reunited film after, you know, Powell finishes working it with Corda. The movie that came out in 1940, Contraband, and this is the first run the two had together during the Second World War. And the second movie they made together was The 49th Parallel, coming out in 1941, which Pressburger won an Academy Award for, for Best Story. And both of them were very Hitchcock-like and also anti-Nazi propaganda. So we're seeing the stage be set. You know, World War I plays a key role in what they're doing. Uh, and then immediately after that, it feels immediately, you know, World War II. And it's, at least in terms of art, it feels immediate. Um, 
they go on and it just makes sense. It's, it's one of those stories where it just, what, what else were they going to do? So there's their theme. Their theme is we're anti-war guys. This is our style. We make thrillers. We make sort of Hitchcock like things. And that's really it. You know, they they got the 1940s building up until that point, not long after they met and you get a matter of life and death, which started off traditionally as they would always make movies as an anti-war propaganda piece. Now, eventually it becomes a little more complex. And this is where you get those themes that Brianna and I were talking about earlier about the, you know, encouragement of, I don't want to say reunition between um, the English and the Americans at the time, but originally they're, they're saying, okay, well, we're going to uh, make this propaganda project, but then they run into this guy called Jack Bennington, who was the head of film at the Ministry of Information, and he, he, he's out to lunch with the guys, you know? I feel like these guys hung out all the time. Like, I don't know if they were married, but wives had to have been jealous if they were. And he asked them, he, he says, can't you two fellows think of a good idea to improve Anglo-American relations? I, that, I don't know where that question came from. I wasn't at the lunch, but the Guardian said that it happened. But, you know, when I take a step back and think about it, you're looking at these two guys. You know their drill. You know what they're capable of. And very easily it's like, these guys could do it. You know what I mean? It just seems like I bite into my, well, it's not a hamburger. It's he and crumpets. And, and I'm like, man, like, I want to eat a hamburger, but I don't want to be judged. It's something as simple as that. You know, like a simple passing thought. This is an extreme hypothetical, by the way. <laughs> and, you know, it's just like, yeah, things are kind of weird between us and the States. And it's like, you guys are making a war movie, right? Like, could you do it? I, I, I Can you do it? And then we, we see a matter of life and death. And that's really all I have for these two. And I'm trying to keep it short because I know <laughs> what's coming. Brianna, tell them what's coming. David Niven. Oh, I promise you I can keep it short. I, I gave myself a pep talk before I did this. Brianna, you got to keep it short. <laughs> you are perfectly fine. Brianna, why don't you tell us about your relationship <laughs> with David Niven? David Niven is uh, my all-time favorite actor. Um, so I could really go off and on and on and on about this. Uh, but I did, whenever John like agreed to do this movie, he let me pick for this week. And I said, oh, let's let's do A Matter of Life and Death because I knew it was available on YouTube. Um, and I immediately said, but can I do the actor this week? Um, John was like, sure. I said, great. Uh, so now you're all going to have to deal with the consequences of that decision. So David Niven is the lead actor uh, in A Matter of Life and Death. And he was born James David Graham Niven on March 1st, 1910 in London, England. So he's a British actor. Um, and he leads just this incredible life. You know, a big part of the reason that I, A, because I think he's a great actor. Uh, but B, you know, a big part of the reason I'm drawn to him is because of this life he leads and a lot of stuff that he manages to juggle and do that kind of sets him apart in my mind from a lot of other actors 
So as I said, uh, David Niven was born on March 1st, 1910 in London, England. Um, you know, none of it is really particularly important to what we're talking about here, but there's a lot of dispute over who his actual father is. Um, he was born to William Edward Graham Niven and his wife, Henrietta Julia. Uh, but there's some question about who exactly, like, his father is. Because after his father's death, um, his mother married this other guy, Sir Thomas Coman Platt, in 1917. Um, that apparently they'd been carrying on an affair for some time before the death of her husband. So a lot of people speculate that, that this Sir Thomas fellow might have actually been David Niven's biological father. Uh, so right off the bat, just a guy that has some interesting, you know, background in his life. Um, but, you know, as he grows up... He ends up attending boarding school. He receives many instances of corporal punishment for his inclination for pranks while in boarding school, which is kind of an important thing to note about Niven, because one of the things that's really going to define him and his time in Hollywood, and that even spans like through the decades, he's one of the most, you know, beloved stars in Hollywood history because of the fact that he was just such a like jovial funny guy like he was always just pulling pranks you know always had something witty to say and so you see that even from a young age so in 1928 Niven attends the Royal Military College in Sandhurst graduating in 1930 with a commission as a second lieutenant in the British Army and again that becomes important and just a little bit so Niven continues to kind of get in trouble, do different pranks and stuff uh, in the army, but grows tired of the peacetime army. He moves to New York City. He begins an un unsuccessful career in whiskey sales, um, after which he had a stint in horse rodeo promotion. He was promoting rodeos for a little bit in Atlantic City, which is kind of wild. Uh, but after just kind of roaming around aimlessly for a little bit, arrives in Hollywood in 1934 and just goes into central casting where he learned he needs a work permit to work in the United States. So he went to Mexico, where he worked as a gunman, uh, polishing rifles of American hunters. All while doing this, he then receives that visa that he goes back to America and ends up getting cast as an extra with the title Anglo-Saxon Type Number 2008. I think that's a, that's a great title, honestly. <laughs> um, so there's this kind of list here of movies that he is an extra in, uh, you know, that you can see him. One of them is Mutiny on the Bounty from 1935, which is a really great movie on its own, but it's like two and a half hours, and I watched it basically just to try and find him in a non-speaking role. I didn't see him. Would not recommend watching it just for David Niven, for anybody <laughs> listening out there. Would you recommend watching it, period? Yes, I would. It's okay. good in general, uh, but not if you're expressly watching it for David Niven. <laughs> as, so as I'm sure you do with most movies. <laughs> Every time I watch a movie, it's just for David Niven. I'm always <laughs> looking for him. Uh, but then he ends up um, going to Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer for a bit role in the movie Rosemarie in 1936. Again, a movie that I watched for David Niven and he's in it for less than a minute, but it's fine. Uh, he's billed as David Nivens in that movie, interestingly enough. Uh, so they misspelled his name <laughs> the first time he gets, he gets credit. Um, but he ends up, you know, like I mentioned, mutiny on the bounty. He has a non-speaking role, but somehow this, this incident still brings him to the attention 
of Samuel, Samuel Goldwyn, who was an independent producer at the time, who then signed him in his first contract. Um, he ends up doing, you know, just little bit roles here and there. His first real part came in 1936 in a movie called Doddsworth. Um, he was a supporting player in that, again, only in it for about 10 minutes, but his role in that is really, really great. Um, he's kind of, you know, this young man that the, the older wife in the movie takes an interest in, you know, kind of ends up having a little bit of a fling with. And then he's loaned a 20th Century Fox to play what's his first lead role in a movie called Thank You, Jeeves. Um, but that, it's not very good, but like you can definitely see right off the bat that he has some, some star quality, but that wasn't like a, a hit-making movie, you know. But then he ends up getting another good part, this time again as a supporting actor, uh, in the movie Charge of the Light Brigade in 1936, which was an adventure film that he starred in with what would be his housemate, Errol Flynn, and this really starts to put him on the map. He then's, he's just making his way up in the world in Beloved Enemy, 1936, he gets fourth billing, in Universal uh, Universal Studios, he is in We Have Our Moments, 1937. And then his real, real breakout part, at least in my mind, uh, is 1937 in David O. Selznick's The Prisoner of Zenda. Uh, he's got a really great supporting part in there. He gets to be, you know, funny, not just some guy that is the punchline. Like, he's really killing it in there. Um, that begins to give him more and more parts. So he's getting, you know, you see him kind of picking up the pace, gets more support parts in 1938. Uh, probably the most notable of that is Ernst Lubitsch's Bluebeard's Eighth Wife, starring Gary Cooper. And then as we get into, you know, 1939 is when you see him really, really take off. So he graduates to star parts in A films in 1938 with a remake of The Dawn Patrol, uh, again with Errol Flynn. And this, uh, for my money, aside from a matter of life and death, is maybe his, his best performance. You know, while well, he ends up being known primarily as a comedic actor today, you know, if we look back at him, uh, he's got some really, really great drama. Uh, and that movie did really, really well. So he ends up in 1939 uh, doing quite a lot. This is like Dave Niven's big year. Um, he is given the supporting part as Edgar Linton in Wuthering Heights in 1939, which initially he was reluctant to take that because it was a support part. He kind of wanted to, to continue that ascension, uh, but he took the part and the film was a big success and he's really, really wonderful in it. But he really starts to take off in the kind of middle part in 1939, whenever RKO borrows him to play Ginger Rogers as leading man in the romantic comedy Bachelor Mother, uh, which was a huge hit. You know, he has second billing in that movie. This is really taking off for him. Uh, they throw him into The Real Glory in 1939, again with Gary Cooper. And then he gets his first, you know, top build lead role uh, in Eternally Yours, 1939, with Loretta Young, and Raffles, where he gets to play the titular safecracker, um, which that is a, a tremendous movie. But you see all of these things. You know, David Niven has finally made it. He's getting A parts. He is getting lead roles. And then September 1st, 1939, uh, Germany invades Poland, and then Britain declares war on Germany a couple days later in 1939. The day after Britain declared war on Germany, David Niven went back to the United Kingdom and joined the British Army. So right at the peak of his fame, he had finally made it to being a star, and he left. He left it all behind to go fight for Britain uh, in World War II, which is something that 
you know, even after all this time, still blows my mind. Um, just what a choice to make. I think this really uh, shows the, the difference of character between, you know, Englishmen at the time and famous Americans at the time. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as you said that, I thought of a famous American figure, Elvis, <laughs> who also went to fight in the war around, you know, uh, no, it wasn't the fifth. I don't know when. I don't know when he went to fight to the war. Uh, so around this time, I'm, I'm sort of generalizing. But he goes because people, you know, he's, he's made it, you know, and, and he's huge. But people are sort of, you know, obviously the whole, big whole boo-hoo about Elvis is that he was <laughs> scandalous. And yes. no, he's just a good old American boy. He's going to go to the war. Mm -hmm. He did it as a PR move mm -hmm. for making it. Where it really doesn't seem like with David Niven, there was any no other reason besides it felt like the right thing to do for him to go, which is really admirable. And I also think that it's important to note that war was... You know, you see his his time in the Second World War, and you think, well, obviously, he's made to play this role mm -hmm. in a matter of life and death. Yes. But I think it's easy to forget those parts of the First World War playing such a huge role in his life with the death of his father and things like that. So, yes, Second World War, obviously, duh. You know, he put him in there. But this conflict in Europe has always been a part of his life, too. Mm -hmm. And it just seems like the perfect casting choice later on. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's a really important point too about him just kind of feeling like it was the right thing to do. And that difference between, you know, kind of British stars and American stars and their response to World War II. You know, the British stars were kind of, I don't want to say encouraged because that's not necessarily the correct word, but they had less to lose by doing it. Whereas the American film industry told stars like, James Stewart and Robert Montgomery, who wanted to go to war, basically don't do it. Both of them did not listen to that, which is great. Um, but, you know, there's a real difference kind of in that, that the, the British stars are given a little more leeway to immediately go ahead and do that. And so David Niven does that. And during his time in the war, you know, obviously he's helping with war effort in general uh but he also is used by the british government in a couple you know war movies of the time the first of the few in 1942 directed by leslie howard who was another uh, british actor in the united states who went over to kind of help in the war um, and the way ahead 1944 you know two great things that included um david niven in David Niven acting as a soldier and an officer uh, at a time when that's exactly what he was doing in his real life. It's a really, really interesting part to kind of look at in his filmography. And on March 14th, 1944, Niven was promoted uh, to a temporary lieutenant colonel, after which point he actually took part in the Allied invasion of Normandy in June 1944. Um, he served like in that capacity as a secret reconnaissance and signals unit uh, which located and reported enemy positions. So, uh, again, the, absolutely wild that he ends up taking place um, in the D-Day invasion as well. Now, during that time, this is the last thing that's kind of important to note going into a matter of life and death. So, obviously, once the war ends, uh, he goes back to making movies. A matter of life and death is the first movie he makes after the war. 
But because, again, David Niven is, is a man of contradictions and, and really interesting things. Uh, on le- while on leave in 1940 from the Army, Niven met Primula, Primi, Susan Rollo, uh, and after a whirlwind romance, they got married on September 16, 1940. They had two sons, David Jr. and James Graham Niven. But unfortunately, uh, his wife died at only 28, um, only six weeks after the family moved back to the United States after the war in a really, really tragic accident that uh, at a party at Tyrone Power, who was another actor, at his house, they were all playing a game. Um, she walked through a door, believing it to be a closet, but then fell down the staircase and died, which is really, really, really sad. And this happens very soon uh, after the release of A Matter of Life and Death, leaving David Niven for about two years until he remarries. David Niven, a single father of two very young sons making movies in Hollywood. Um, And that's kind of where we leave off at A Matter of Life and Death. Whenever this movie comes out, it's just a couple of weeks until he's going to be widowed and left with single fatherhood for a couple years. And so all of it kind of takes on this really interesting added tone, you know, just kind of in knowing what David Niven is bringing to the table. Um, It really, really adds a lot. Again, there's nobody more perfect for this role uh, than David Niven. And hopefully that wasn't too long, but man's deserves his time. <laughs> <laughs> Two things I want to point out. Uh, I did some digging on David Niven myself. Uh, simple things, and I'm breaking sort of my role of, you know, post uh, <laughs> talking about the movie we're talking about. Uh, he plays Aaron Burr in The Magnificent Doll, which is interesting because he's in this movie sprinkled with founding fathers of the United States. And, you know, just just a couple no same year as this movie where it's like oh english relationships and american <laughs> relationship so that's funny especially considering that you know aaron burr kind of murdered one of the founding fathers right. but uh <laughs> you know that. you can look at it as a as a pro or a con however you however you decide <laughs> also plays james bond Casino Royale. Mm-hmm. Now i'm not a big james bond guy i've never watched james bond i don't know who all the james bond uh actors are so i see oh he plays james bond at casino royale i start thinking oh casino royale is that's a huge you know james bond movie that's one of the most famous ones so i click on it (laughs) not only did he play james bond he played james bond in a movie with orson welles yes he did that's awesome (laughs) yep (laughs) so obviously very impressive guy great guy i i i took a lot away from that i i think he's awesome but brianna i think that you're putting up a front I'm putting up a front. Yes. Oh, gosh. Here's what I think. Okay. I think despite all of those accomplishments, that's not what makes him your favorite actor. <laughs> I think it's the mustache. It's absolutely the mustache. <laughs> Come on. You can't you can't not love that mustache. I think it would look weird on anybody else, but it looks really good on him. I'm not going to lie. The first time that I saw him <laughs> on the screen... <laughs> I hated the mustache. No, really? Yeah, I did. I, I hated it. I was like, I don't know. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't in World War II or, <laughs> I wasn't in World War II. or an Englishman, albeit that. Like, I don't know. I've never seen anyone with that kind of mustache before. And like, I saw him and I was like, oh, this guy looks like Dick Dastardly. And immediately <laughs> I just wasn't taking him serious. And that was a problem. I think we're going to have to end the episode here. I can't, I, John, I can't take this slander. But uh, now, 
Now I know. <laughs> now you get it. Now I understand. <laughs> After the movie, I was like, maybe he's not Dick Dastardly. <laughs> that mustache was very in style at the time. I'll have you know. I know. They all had it. Right. Like half of them had it. It's like, what's going on? <laughs> you got a little leftover from lunch on your upper lip. Take care of that. Not no, no disrespect to David Dimon, kind of, but also, you know, not really. That guy's in, super impressive. Yeah. Another important thing I want to I mention before we dive into this. So here in the United States, for us, it's a matter of life and death. Mm-hmm. In the United Kingdom, it is Stairway to Heaven. Uh, and she's buying. <laughs> uh, anyways, um, <laughs> I think it's time we should, we should dive into the movie. Absolutely. All right, so. We start off the movie with what feels like a Disney ride. Uh, it, it put me really in mind of one of those rides that you would enjoy at Disney where it's super hot in the day and you're just trying to get out of the sun. So you go on the slow educational ride. Uh, yes. But you have this Technicolor introduction and it's just going through the cosmos. It's just this it, – it's – panning over some space art it, it looks it reminds me very much of a title card for like a tom and jerry episode kind of deal uh that kind of art style but it's space and there's this narration about space and you know how there's all these different planes and realms and anything's possible and that sort of thing uh just to try to get your mind in the right mindset of what's about to come and it's really cool. Mm-hmm. It's really sort of mesmerizing. As I mentioned, it really puts me into the into the thought process of, of, of those <laughs> educational Disney rides. Um, but I liked it, with that being said. And it's talking about this, and eventually you get to Earth, and they're like, oh, look, it's Earth. Check it out. And suddenly this tranquil narrator, as we zoom into Earth and zoom into this uh, crashing pilot, the tone of the narration picks up and earth is enter and it's just chaotic. Suddenly that narration isn't as like, Oh, this is space. Welcome to the cosmos. <laughs> it's like, Oh my God, welcome to world war two. Here's what's going on there. Here's, here's the, Oh my God. It's a pilot. We got this radio operator lady, like stuff's crazy <laughs> on earth right now. And I think that was really interesting because this movie really focuses on a lot of human mm-hmm. themes and, you know, outside in space, there's no humans. There's not. There's no conflict. There's no matter value or matter of time because out there, there really feels like there is no time. There really isn't time. Kind of, it, it, it really gets you thinking. And then as soon as you get to Earth, bam, all that's over. You know, and they they do that just in the simple change of the narration. And I I really enjoyed that. I, it 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 draws you in immediately. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Like even that's one of my notes that even the opening credits of this are just absolute magic like right off the bat you can kind of tell like you mentioned earlier right off the bat you're kind of like oh this is this is something different like it makes you sit up straight pay attention and what we learn to see is going on on earth is we are introduced to june who is our radio operator and she's getting a call she's having a conversation you hear them before you see them she's having a conversation with peter cushing carter carter Oh my God! You got Peter Cushing's like another actor, <laughs> I so knew, that I, yeah. like you had something there. You're good. <laughs> so she's talking to Peter Carter, whose plane is going down over Lancaster. Yeah. And 
he's the only survivor on his plane. One of his men is dead. The other one's bailed by his orders. And he's just talking to her. And she's like, well, can you send us our coordinates? It's going to be like, okay, we'll come get you. We'll figure it out. And he's more or less just accepting the fact that he's going to die. And he's like, hey, June, why don't you just talk to me for a bit before I jump out of this plane? And she's like, oh, my God, why are you going to jump out of the plane? He's like, well, I'd rather fall on my demise than cook in the plane. So they have this really interesting and, again, very human conversation where he's just sort of like, you have a nice voice. like, And, and it's just an exchange of well, what do you what do you think happens after we die, which obviously very relevant to, to Peter there, but not to June, you know what I mean? And it's really nice. Um, I don't think I can do that conversation justice, but imagine you're going to crash in a plane, like, and you've come to peace with it. What, what would you talk about kind of thing? And it's, it's different for everyone. And that movie really does a good job of picking what Peter would talk about. And Peter's a poet as well, as we learn later on in the movie. And the whole conversation sort of feels like a poem too, which is really interesting. And he's sort of like, yeah, June, you know, I, I, I'd date you if I could. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's very loving. It's very sort of, you know, lighthearted because why not be lighthearted at that point? It's really good. And it, it again, really good at just grabbing your attention. It's just attention grabbers mm -hmm. after attention grabbers at yeah. the start of this movie. One thing I want to mention for any Marvel fans out there, if you know the end of the first Captain America movie, you know that Captain America is in a very similar situation where he has to put down his plane and he's talking to P oh, Peggy Carter, which, interesting, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Peggy Carter, who he's in love with, a pre-established relationship beforehand, and they just sort of have this sort of lighthearted conversation he's, as he's about to sink the plane, and... Uh, they say that, and if you watch the two scenes, they're they're different, but you can also sort of understand how similar they really are. They say that there was inspiration taken from A Matter of Life and Death for that scene. So if you like Marvel, uh, just yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of inspiration in those movies. So keep that in the back of your mind if you have, if you watch that one again. And uh, you know, I'll I'll toss it over to you if you'd like to to pick up. Sure, absolutely. Uh, you make a lot of great points about that conversation. It really is one of the greatest opening scenes, I mean, of any movie ever, honestly. <laughs> so at this point, we find out that, you know, Peter jumps out. And they're like, oh, wow, you know, he's going to die. And then that's when it first transitions into that black and white. And you see all of these people coming up into this big kind of sleek modern environment. You're like, where, what's going on? And it quickly becomes clear that this is that other, that place that, you know, is this afterlife. And so, you know, you see just people of all sorts of nationalities walking in. They, like, sign their names into a book and they keep walking. And there is one guy just sitting there kind of chilling. Uh, and it turns out that he is the other guy that was in the plane. Well, one of the other guys, there were a couple other guys, but one of the other guys uh, that was in that plane with Peter. And so he has died and he is sitting there. He's waiting for Peter to get there and he's not. So then one of the, you know, women who is kind of running this, this check-in process comes over to him and she's like, you know, I'm sorry, but you can't wait here anymore. Like you got to keep going. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. So as you know, he's going, he's saying, well, there has to be a mistake. 
There's absolutely no way he could have survived that. And the lady's like, well, we haven't had a mistake for a thousand years. And, you know, the, the guy's <laughs> like, sorry, I shouldn't have stopped like that after that. But, you know, the guy's like, well, okay, well, that means it has happened, but whatever. And she said, well, you know, if it does, all the alarm bells will go off. Well, lo and behold, the scene transition occurs with all of these alarm bells going off for us to see Peter lying in the middle of the ocean, just his body. But then he sits up. He is not dead. Uh, He is very much alive. And so he ends up just kind of walking across the beach at this point, believing that he is dead. Um, Has a conversation with a little boy who, even after watching this five times, I don't understand why that child is sitting there like completely undressed. I don't know if you noticed that, but it, I it makes me so uncomfortable I, I, every time. I sort of, yeah, I agree. I dismissed it because I didn't want to think of any other reasons why there was just this naked boy <laughs> on the beach. <laughs> just sitting I was there. like, maybe it's supposed to be like a symbolic religious thing. Right. Like, you know, you think of Adam and Eve and they were naked at this start. So, like, I was like, that that's how I'll take it. Don't know why. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's how I played it off. Um, I, I want to <laughs> mention this. I want to move on from the naked boy. It's, I'm always so confused by it. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned the other, and one thing that really stood out to me there is they show a clock right at the beginning of the introduction of this afterlife, and the second hand on the clock is moving, and at least in the version that we watched, it moves perfectly in sync with the music, and it's very natural, and... I think that that was done on purpose because time becomes such an important factor in this movie. You know, obviously there's the theme of, oh, we all, you know, we all only have so much time and your time is up at a certain time kind of thing. But it takes on sort of a different view later on because Peter's like, well, I like, they're like, oh, he borrowed time. And you're like, no, you guys gave it to me. Like, that's on you kind of thing. So it, it becomes a very important focal point. So I think that the natural aspect of that clock just sort of flowing with the environment and with the, the music is a great way to introduce that afterlife. Uh, so I really like that. Also, there's a, a, a guy who comes up the, the escalator into the afterlife and he walks past a white wall. At least I'm assuming it was white. It was um, it, it, everything there looks white. <laughs> yes. Obviously it's black and white, but like you can sort of tell when something has color to right. it or not. Uh, it looks like this very blank and white wall and the camera sort of angles itself where there's this really cool and close shot of his shadow and he just pays no attention to it. Now, when we go back down, Peter, who's thinks he's dead, but isn't as soon as he gets on the beach, he stops and he looks at his shadow and he sort of like waves to it and he acknowledges it. And I don't know what the, messaging behind that was if it was even meant to happen but i feel like because peter waves at it there yeah, is it's like deliberate yeah and i i just thought that was a super cool subtle touch there as to the differences between the living and the dead um you know when you're dead the, the last thing you're going to think about is your own existence and location and you're not you don't care about that shadow mm-hmm. but peter who thinks he's dead he looks at that shadow you know what i mean and it's like any other time i think if i were dead then i'd <laughs> I wouldn't be like, oh, look. There's my shadow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Peter goes on in this beach, and he finds out after talking to the, the boy that 
he's in fact not dead. He's still, he, he's just where his plane went down. He just landed uh, nearby there and he's walking. And who does he run into? No other than June, who is now suddenly closer to him. Uh, and, you know, despite the fact that she was far away, you know, up until that point. So interesting there. I, I like to think one of the things that I love about this movie and at points they try to pick a side, but I think it's more fun if you don't let the movie tell you how to think about it. But it's really interesting how there's so many different ways you can interpret this movie. You know, you can think, okay, uh, maybe maybe he survived. Okay, maybe he survived the, the crash. And this is all a hallucination, mm -hmm. which is an idea they explore. Yeah. Maybe he's still in the plane and this is just like a, a dream, you know, before his final moments. Maybe it's all literal. Maybe there really is this other side that's talking to him. And, you know, when he's walking on the beach, it's like, oh, well, maybe June is just uh, a, a dream that he can't have now. You know, it's a it's a denial of death type deal. And you, you end up taking it literally at, at various points in the movie because you have to in order for the plot to progress. <laughs> right. But it's really interesting to keep that in the back of your mind. And I think that's what really draws you in the most mm -hmm. when you're watching this movie. Anyways, uh, so he, he runs into June. They reunite. He's like, oh, my gosh, I never thought I'd see you. Like, this is great. I loved our conversation. Like, I love you. Like, let's get out of here. I thought I was going to die, but you know what? I'm alive, and I'm going to make the most of it. So they hang. They chill. And they end up in the, this forest. Um, I, I guess it's the forest. Yeah, some, something. <laughs> Just hanging out it in the forest. like a rainforest cafe, yeah. honestly. <laughs> and June falls asleep. And she, he's talking to her. He's like, June, do you, do you want a drink? And she doesn't answer. And you think, okay, whatever. She's asleep. But he's pouring the drinks. And as he turns to ask her the question, he has a full glass on like a nearby stump or branch or something. And when he turns back after she doesn't answer, that glass is gone. So he's like, oh, whatever. I'll just pour one for myself then. And he does that. And sure enough, that glass disappears too. And you're like, okay, what's going on here? And then... An extremely French man appears. Very. <laughs> very, very French, dressed in French Revolution clothing, because as we found out in the other side, which we didn't mention this beforehand, but there's a conversation there. Uh, this was the man who was supposed to retrieve Peter and take him to, you know, the 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 other afterlife, whatever you want to call it. And he's like, I couldn't I couldn't find you. I showed up to go Grim Reaper you, uh, but it was way too foggy because England sucks. England's weather sucks. Guess what? Your, your, your time's up. You're coming with me. And Peter's like, no way. Like, I'm alive. You messed up. Kick rocks, dude. Get out of here. And I can't remember. His name is just, is it yeah, Messenger? Yeah, it's just the Conductor. The Conductor, conductor 71 yes. specifically. Yes. But so this guy's a conductor and he's supposed to, you know, like a train conductor, deliver them to the other side. A Grim Reaper-esque character is how I would describe it. Yeah. Only he's not. He's a French man who got his head chopped off in the revolution or in the French revolution. Which is revolution. such a funny line too whenever he <laughs> says that. Oh, I love him. He's, he's hilarious. Yeah. This guy has some killer lines and I read that the man who played him and I, I should really learn the name there. Marius Goring. Marius Goring. Okay. He, um, didn't actually want the role of the conductor. He wanted to play Peter's role. And they told him, no, you're either doing the conductor role or nothing else. <laughs> and he gets the conductor role. And that had to have been such a fun role to play. Yeah. Including 
lines such as to Peter when Peter's like, no, I'm not going to get going back with you. He says, ah, you're really trying to get me into the salad, aren't you? <laughs> and I love that. That's I'm going to start using that. Please do. Anytime something goes wrong, I'm like, oh, man, this is going to get me into the salad. <laughs> so that's awesome. That's a great one. I, oh, go ahead. I like to think this is probably messed up. I like to think that that's like a French line from the mm-hmm. French Revolution, like, you put salad in a bowl and they're cutting off heads and they go <laughs> bowls like that would I don't be know. funny. <laughs> yeah, that like, is messed up, but I appreciate it. I don't know. Um I, I've never heard that before, so right. I sort of just took it as like maybe it's a French Revolution thing. Who knows? Um he also does this bit where he he asks Peter, he's like, Do you want me to use force? <laughs> but before he says force, he does like the you know, you, you, all right. The like chef's kiss thing. Yeah, the chef's kiss. The younger generation knows what I'm talking about. The, yeah. The Italian meme where it's like just the hands, like the, oh, the wee wee, you know, kind of <laughs> deal. Like, and they, I, I can't, I wish we had cameras, Brianna. I know. We're, we're sitting here <laughs> doing this to a microphone. But he's like, you don't want me to use. And then he does the like wee wee with his hands kind of thing. And he's like, force, do you? Uh, it's hilarious. It's so good. But then he's like, him and Peter come to the agreement. He's like, okay, fine. I'll appease, like, I'll try to go get your case checked out. Um, maybe they'll decide that you don't have to die yet because, you know what, it is my fault, kind of. He doesn't admit it, but, like, you know, he's like, I get it. That's fair. Yeah, You know, you're, like, you're on borrowed time right now, but also it's our fault, so you're not really borrowing it. We'll go check it out. And in one last attempt to get him to come up, there's this awesome and sort of ominous line where he asks Peter, he's like, do you like to play chess? And Peter's like, yeah, you like chess? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, you can play with me like every day for eternity. And I I didn't do it justice because I'm missing. It's not like that dark. Or like, you know what I mean? Like I made it really dark. Uh, It's not. Um, But it's, it was, it was really cool. And for the first time I'm like, Oh, like, yeah, this guy's kind of goofy, but he's also still death. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, Brianna, I want to ask you this. Yes. How are you responding if an extremely French man comes to you on your deathbed? Uh, are you going to be concerned at all, or are you like, are you cool with this? You know, I think just because of the fact that I'm such a big fan of this movie, I would, like, have to make the reference on my deathbed. Like, my dying words would be a reference to this movie, which, you know, die how I live, right? Honestly. <laughs> but while we're, while we're on the, the topic of this scene, one line in particular that I love from the captain that's, like, this just incredible fourth wall break is whenever he like comes down and it goes from this moment of being black and white into that technicolor and he looks at the camera and says one is starved for technicolor up there and that is such an incredible fourth wall break like i love it that that part in particular every single time Eat kills your me heart out ferris bueller or deadpool or whoever <laughs> yeah this is the best fourth wall break <laughs> losers you've lost i don't know i i well I, I agree. I think it's a little bit better because it, it's it's got like sort of an attitude to it. Right. Like, hey, check. You ever seen Technicolor? Check out oh. what we're doing. <laughs> and the, the Technicolor was such a pain for them. Like, if you look into this movie, and I'm not going to dive too in depth with it. If you look into this movie, things took forever. Okay, I, I do have a little a little uh, a clip here um, that that I'll read. So there was a nine month wait 
for film stock and Technicolor cameras because they were being used by the U.S. Army to make training films. Uh, the decision to film the scenes of the other world in black and white added to these complications because they're not just doing one thing. Uh, where, well, okay, so yeah, we'll stop there. But, all right, I'm going to try to explain this. Bear with me because... <laughs> Surprisingly, John doesn't understand 1940s uh, technology here, um, so, so try to bear with me. So the decision to film the scenes of the other world in black and white added to the complications. Where the other world is seen, it was filmed in three-strip Technicolor, but no color was added during the printing process, giving a pearly hue to the black and white spots a process cited in the screen credits as color and dye monochrome processed in Technicolor. So you can sort of get the problem here. Mm -hmm. You have two different just like obviously they're using Technicolor cameras, which were hard enough to get a hold of back then at that time anyways, especially considering the U.S. Army's using them to make training videos for this is after World War Two. So, you know, still like they're now everyone's a little more paranoid because World War Two just happened. So you get it. There's a lot going on here. And now you're using it for black and white, too, to get this gray and, you know, Huey um, type of things or type of energy is what I should say. So they did a lot of crazy things here. And this just really, really complicated things uh, for the production of this movie. So the Technicolor, yes, I was starved for it, too. It was great to <laughs> see. But it made things really complex for them. Mm -hmm. um, like it was it was tough on them. Um, but they, they came up with so many creative solutions. There was one guy who it was, it was a cinematographer who wanted to add a hue to a certain scene. So he would just fog up the lens camera with his breath before he shot, which is super cool. That's awesome. Because like, you know, you could add like a fog machine in there, but it doesn't look probably like quite as heavenly, if right. you will, as you would want it to. It's going to look more like, look more like you know, scary. Yeah. It's so like a thriller video. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, super cool. But also this movie, it, it, it takes its punches mm -hmm. in terms of pulling this off. Yeah. So, uh, even more respect for that. Mm -hmm. If you would like to take it away. Sure. Absolutely. So what happens then, uh, is, you know, Peter comes out of this, I guess, vision, you know, there were, they think it's a vision. But he ends this conversation with the conductor and, you know, June like wakes back up because the conductor is frozen time. Um, and June's like, hey, what the heck? You didn't just talk to a Frenchman. Why are you saying this? And so she takes him to, you know, a doctor friend of hers, Dr. Reeves, uh, who ends up diagnosing these visions, not as him speaking to somebody from the other world, but as a specific uh, brain injury from a slight concussion two years earlier that we find out about in the movie um, that, you know, of course, then is exacerbated by the fact that he just, I don't know, jumped out of a plane. So what happens is they decide to schedule him for a surgery, that they want to fix this. Um, and during that time, Peter is staying at the home of Dr. Reeves. You know, him and June are watching them or watching him. Uh, and during that time, the conductor comes back to him again and says, you know what? They have let you appeal. We are going to court, brother. But as part of that, he has to pick a defense counsel from among all the people who have ever died that they can defend him. 
But he finds out in this too that the person that will be arguing against him is a guy by the name of Abraham Farlin, who was the first person to die in the Revolutionary War, the first American to die uh, by the hands of the British. So as the conductor explains, uh, he hates Peter's guts and is doubly angry about the fact that he has fallen in love and corrupted this good American girl from, of all places, Boston, uh, Boston, Massachusetts. So this adds this extra level of, okay, Peter can appeal, but it's going to be an uphill battle. So whenever he's going to pick somebody to be his defense counsel, it better be somebody good. And so he wakes back up from this this vision um, and they come in you know june and dr reeves come back in and they realize you know what this is serious we got to get him in for this surgery otherwise you know he's gonna go insane so you know obviously with this he gets a lot of peter gets a lot of good support in this movie uh dr reeves i we got to take a moment to talk about him what a man (laughs) dr reeves is a fantastic character he is so much fun he's got such a great wit about him every line that he gets sort of gets you thinking more Mm -hmm. about the situation too it plays into that well is this really happening or is it a medical thing it's it's so great he's got this great energy to him too Mm -hmm. like he's just so fun to watch he there's this really cool shot where, where they first introduce him, where he's just playing around with the camera, just a guy trying to learn. And the only lighting in the scene is from a projector that's being flashed onto a round table. And it looks very much like an eye, which in itself is kind of like a comment on the film industry. Which, mm-hmm. Cool. I'm going to geek, yeah. geek out over that a little <laughs> bit. Um, and, yeah, it's just everything about him is just so, so much. And... It's great. Uh, I, I I thought Dr. Reeves' performance was great. Yes. Um, I, I, again, don't know the actor, um, but really great stuff there. And also worth acknowledging, the woman who plays June just as captivating oh, on screen yes. as well. Her name is Kim Hunter. Mm-hmm. And cool thing about uh, how Kim Hunter came to be, we've talked about on the show before, Alfred Hitchcock seemed to have this, like, <laughs> like just countless actresses that he would pull yeah. from. And he was using Kim Hunter uh, behind the camera for Ingrid Bergman mm-hmm. in Spellbound. So you see that, again, that similarity of those themes in, in, in that World War II, post-World War II era um, with, the, with the themes we touched upon earlier. And also Ingrid Bergman, the fact that yeah. like, he's, she's reading for her, who's fantastic in herself. Mm-hmm. Um, really great stuff. Uh, really, really great stuff. I, I cannot do... Dr. Reeves enough justice though. I, I wanted like June's performance is great. Yes. But June's June's also sort of there just to be in love with, I think. Right, right. She's not given a lot of development. Yeah, exactly. But she doesn't need it. Right. You know what I mean? She's I, great. I can't knock the movie for that. Yeah. But maybe you can add to Dr. Reeves because I, I really want to make sure he gets the credit he deserves. Sure. So Dr. Reeves is played by a guy named Roger Livesey, uh, which I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. I've never said his name out loud because I've never had the occasion <laughs> to, uh, oddly enough. But he was in several Powell and and Pressburger movies throughout the years. Uh, Just one of those great kind of stock British actors for them. Um, You know, he would play a romantic lead in I Know Where I'm Going. Um, Also in The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, both Powell and Pressburger pictures. Um, He's really just basically one one of the best British actors you've probably never heard of. So he really does bring such a a quality 
to this and Kim Hunter too. I'm glad you you highlighted her as well because she is another one of those actresses who is in a lot of these really like classic revered roles, but we don't necessarily talk about her a lot. This movie does wonders for her because she ends up getting the part uh, opposite Marlon Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire in both the play and the movie uh, in the early 1950s as a big result of this particular movie. So she's really good at playing those kind of like just, you know, like docile, sweet <laughs> kind of characters. Um, so, you know, that that support from both her and Roger Livesey is wonderful. Perfectly cast in every way. Absolutely. Uh, another thing that I would like to mention is we learned that with the conductor, he has the ability to stop time. And he said, we just talk in space. And again, the, the lines this guy has are, are just great and interesting. Um, so when Peter is spending his time with Dr. Reeves in June, Dr. Reeves says, okay, if you have another hallucination, I want you to ring this bell, get some rest. We're going to go hang out. So he's hanging out with June. They're playing table tennis. So naturally, when the conductor returns, they're playing table tennis and we know the conductors return because we're watching them play table tennis and then the game just stops. So this was another one of those scenes that caused them some issues production-wise because this was stopped action and Hunter and Livesey were trained by champions Alan Brooke and Victor Barna. So they weren't playing around. They knew their <laughs> table tennis. Um, and this stop action just sort of sort of caused them some trouble. Um, they, they didn't list any specifics, but yeah, they, they had a hard time there. But I think the fact that they were trained is hilarious, yes. especially because they're trained just to stop playing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that was, it's really cool too, because you don't see a lot of that yeah. in, in the early movies, which mm -hmm. is crazy because a tableau, you know, even for actors could, could very much resemble that, but they they chose not to do it that way mm -hmm. um, in this movie. So lots and lots of just technical uh, trial and error here, and they pull it off. You know, at the, at the end of the day, that that trial, uh, kind of pun intended, actually. Um, <laughs> you know, they they end up on top of that. So good stuff there. Yeah, absolutely. All right, take it away. Okay. So they end up kind of trying to move up the surgery uh, as much as possible because they really think that this isn't going to end well. So Reeves ends up speeding off on his motorcycle that we see him ride uh, many times throughout the movie. And he is speeding off. And we see that, you know, it's pouring rain outside and he ends up getting into an accident and he dies. Now, at this point, they have taken Peter to the hospital. He's in the back of an ambulance um, because, you know, they're taking him to the surgery, but he's also just had another vision uh, where he is talking with the conductor again. And the conductor's like, hey, you don't have much time. You want to, you know, want to pick somebody? Like, you're not going to be able to make a case at this rate. Um, and that really sets him off. So he's in the ambulance on the way to the surgery after having had this conversation. And June tells him, while well, he's just semi conscious, that Dr. Reeves has died. He loses consciousness again, kind of as they bring him into surgery. And then we see that, you know, as he's going into the surgery and then into this state where he's going to be brought to the trial, the conductor, you know, runs to this group of, um, you know, people coming into this other 
and pulls out who but Dr. Reeves says, you know what, you gotta come, qu- you gotta come quick because you're the one that, uh, that Peter picked to, to represent you in this case which is super cool. Like the first time I watched that, I was like, man, who's he going to pick? What's going to happen? And then I thought that was just like the coolest thing in the world that he picked him. And so then from there, we end up going to this kind of back and forth between the surgery and the trial. So we have this third vision with our conductor. And this is where you see the name of the British title for this film, uh, The Stairway to Heaven. And this, again, last sort of production fact that I want to throw in here um, is that this escalator was also really uh, difficult. So this was, um, okay, this cost 3,000 pounds to make, which it was equivalent to 110,000 pounds in 2016. The, the staircase called Ethel (laughs) had 106 steps each 20 feet wide and was driven by a 12 horsepower engine. Now the full shot was completed by hanging miniatures, but the noise that the machinery made to run the the stairs was so loud uh, that they were unable to record the soundtrack live and all of the scenes on the escalator were dubbed in post-production. No and you way. cannot tell. You can't. It's not even close to being wow. able to tell that. I, I never would have guessed in a hundred no. years. But yeah, so that's super cool. Um, and, and I want to ask you, quick, quick interjection here. Yes. You are in Peter's shoes, okay? You have anyone throughout all of history mm-hmm. to represent you in a court case. Anyone in particular, just off the top of your head, that you would consider picking? Because obviously, like... You know, there's the Dr. Oh, Reeves of the world, yeah. right, who who say, like, yeah, I'm your defense attorney down here. Right. Um, so, which sort of leads Peter to pick. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you have people like that. But if you were, if you're just looking history-wise, you know, oh. off the top. Just looking history. He's not a real person. My, my mind immediately went to Atticus Finch from oh. To Kill a Mockingbird, but he's not okay. a real person. But that's a good choice. Does, yeah, does that count? I can't I'll, think of anybody real. I'll take that. You know what? <laughs> Look. We're we're a film on or we're a podcast on classic film. Atticus Finch, I th- I'd I think say, that counts. yeah. In in the a trip through the movies, <laughs> official canon universe, we'll say we're Atticus Finch it. is a real person. What is your pick, John? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Hence why I asked you. I, oh great, thank you. I, I should have thought beforehand after I asked you. Like I was like, oh, if I'm gonna ask her, she's gonna ask me. Yeah, I, I didn't. Um, <laughs> I think that oh, Atticus Finch is such a good answer. You can take that answer. No, I, I'm not, I can't do that. They mentioned Plato and like Socrates and all those guys. Yeah. And I think that they would be cool just to listen to. Yeah. But I'd also think I'd die because they would probably annoy the jury. Right. Like a ton. Because they true. were kind of pretentious. Yeah. Really cool guys. Right. And I think everything like... they did was great. <laughs> But like seriously, they I would do. just go off. But they would just go off, right? I and mean, they literally killed Socrates for that, so like it's fine. <laughs> like, I would be like, "Oh, I love June," but then they'd be like, "Well, what is love?" And I'd be like, I, "Baby, don't hurt me. I don't know." Like, <laughs> I'm not Socrates. Like, you're supposed to be helping me here. 
<laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I thought Socrates would play. I was like, they're probably like the smartest guys guys ever. Yeah. Another one that crossed my mind was Albert Einstein, which Ooh. I I think that's a horrible pick because I thought about this a little bit, but I didn't I didn't come up with an answer. Yeah. Because he's just, I mean, what? He's no arguer. You know what I mean? Right. He's like one of the smartest men ever, if not the smartest man ever. But he's a physicist. You know what I mean? Right. What's he going to tell me about love? He's like, love's not real. You know, like. <laughs> like, that's helpful. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I thought yeah. about it. I really don't know. Um, yeah. I, I, for whatever reason, Abraham Lincoln kept popping into oh, my yeah. head, too. But he was a terrible public speaker. That's so fair. I think in my case, I'm just going to die. <laughs> yeah, I, I really don't like that decision alone would be too much for me. And I would just be like, ah, like I'm just, taking the Yeah. L. Just, just kill me. That's a yeah. good answer. Well, right? Okay. Here's all right. Brianna, I'll make you a deal. Okay. If we ever end up in this predicament, yes. I need you to do me a favor. Okay. Uh, I'm asking, this is going to be a big favor. You want me to die? I need you to not die. Like, on command uh just die before me that would what that'd still be dying on command <laughs> well i'm not saying like if i'm like i'm like, ah, brianna hey i'm in a tough spot here um i was supposed to die two days ago um i kind of need like i know you're alive and having a good time right now but can you die like if you're not already don't go out of your way to die okay but if you're already but if you're already way. dead i'm gonna pick you Okay. Okay. Like, cause you're, you're, you're the only lawyer that I know, you know, <laughs> I feel like we both have like some decently long lives ahead of us. Like okay. you'll have a good background. Right. right. So yeah. Okay. But if not, like if you're not dead, don't worry about it. Okay. Right. No big deal. Okay. You know what? I, I promise you I'm going to take some classes <laughs> in like other world law. Okay. You know, while I'm there. All right. Um, we'll see what I can do. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. So right now you'll, you'll be my tentative pick <laughs> until I think of an actual dead person so that I don't have to ask you to just, you know, die before me. I appreciate the consideration, John. <laughs> You've broken me. Oh, my gosh. So the first real case that Farland makes uh, against uh, Peter is that they, they can't possibly be in love. He's an American and June's or he's an Englishman and June's an American. Wow. Man, the amount of times today that I've mixed up the United States and the UK is unreal. You're doing great. <laughs> but that's his case. He's like, there's no way. They're way too different. And uh, he uses all these different um, examples as to, you know, the, at one point he plays the, the voice of an American radio and it's kind of like, or, yeah, if, is it the American radio? Yeah, they do both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which one does he play? Farland? Yeah. Farland plays the British, like, radio doing cricket. That's right. News. Okay, yes. So he plays the British radio, and he's like, yeah, look, like, I don't know what his point he's trying to <laughs> yes. make is. But then Dr. Reeves plays the American radio, and it's like this nice music. And the whole time I'm thinking as they're playing in their radios back and forth, I'm like, man – they couldn't have done this 10 years later when the Beatles were around. <laughs> oh, that would have been great. Farland's whole case is just out the window there. Right. Like, an American could never love an Englishman. Right. And then, boom, baby, there's the Beatles. Go home. Pack Come it up, Farland. Farland, get out. <laughs> Beatlemania is real, folks. 
So, yeah, he makes this argument that, yeah, the American couldn't love the Englishman. Uh, and, and so many other arguments he could have made, but, you know, obviously with the point of this movie being to try to repair those relationships, uh, he, he doesn't do that. Um, he also makes the case that, or Reeves makes the case that the jury's sort of rigged because they're all, well, Farland acknowledges that, like, hey, uh, everyone on the jury, America's had a war with. And then Dr. Reeves, obviously being not an idiot, is like, well, then what the hell? Get a new jury. <laughs> like, the they're that's all not biased. biased against the yeah, British. They're like... all biased against us. Or the British, yes. Oh, my goodness. You're yes. fine. <laughs> the British. Um, so they, they replace it with a jury of Americans mm -hmm. because then Farland makes this really nice case in favor of America. And again, being that this is a British film, you know, it's nice to see that. And it does a good job of completing the goal that they want to complete. He's like, yeah, America is the place where we're, we're man itself is truly free and truly fair. And we have all that like America's the place to be baby. And Dr. Reeves is like, fine. If that's true, and you, you like you guys are truly as good as you say, then I trust that you like an American jury will make the right decision mm -hmm. here. So then they fill the jury with a very well representative or a population that's very much representative of the um, American culture up until that time, I would say, and also currently in that time. I can't think of specific examples, but I remember thinking that when I was watching, um, they had a very good representation of, of America at that point in that jury, which was cool. And then the, the trial continues to go on with the next biggest component, unless you want to add anything onto this trial that I feel like I'm missing. No, I think you really have it. Like this debate goes on for a long yeah, time. Yeah, it's like it, 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah, it's only two important talking points, mm -hmm. but those two important talking points, there's a lot of really good conversation. Yeah. And if you're a history buff or if you just – are interested in the state of affairs of the world, even now, because a lot of it still holds up right. now. I recommend just listening to that 20 minute conversation. If you don't even watch the entire movie, it's really good. It's really engaging. You sort of take a lot away from it. And I, I, I just really liked it. I, there's really not a whole lot else we can say about it, unfortunately, but yeah, really, really good part. And um, uh, another thing that I want to mention is the court case is packed. There's all these people there. And I think in a movie that's trying to repair American relationships with English relationships, you have this audience that is literally united from everyone around the world because they're all dead. It doesn't matter, you know? And right. it's when you die, you're just as dead as that guy all the way in Germany mm -hmm. who you've been fighting against. You know what I mean? Right. At some point, it's not going to matter. It's not today. It's not tomorrow. But when, you know, at some point, these differences are going to be resolved. Whether you die before that happens or whether it happens naturally, at some point, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I thought that was really cool. Now, they all sit sort of segregated, which was I, – I thought I was like, man, why not mix – everyone right. together to really right. drive that point home. But I think they were segregated to sort of demonstrate, look at all these cultures that are here and together now over a problem about love. Mm -hmm. um, so that I, I thought that was really cool. Yeah. 
absolutely. It really, there's so many like details just in this movie in general, but in the courtroom scene in particular that they just, man, they really put a lot of heart and soul into that. So then we get to the last conversation of the trial and the conversation is, well, Peter can't die because he has other earthly responsibilities now that are the fault of the other world. And that responsibility is his love to June. He loves her and it would be unfair to take that away because had we killed him when he was supposed to die, he wouldn't have had that love. So they decide to go down to the surgery. And then you get this surreal moment where they pull Peter up like out of his body kind of deal. And it's all in color because they're down on earth at this point, which is interesting because they I don't remember if they transition from black into yeah, color. Yeah, they do. They do? Yep, on so, the staircase. Yeah, so they ride the staircase down, mm-hmm. and they go from black and white to color, and it's really it's really good. Mm-hmm. They do that a couple times in this movie, but yeah. it's, it's done very well. And they talk to Peter, and they're like, do you love her? And he's like, yeah, like, of course I do. But <laughs> this is also a really <laughs> funny scene. It is. Like, it's written very cleverly. Like, the, the Farland asks him, he's like, oh, would you die for her? <laughs> And he's like, yeah, like it shows his love because immediately right. he's like, yes, of course. And then they're like, he's like, oh, but I'd rather live because, <laughs> you know, they're like, all right, fine. If you'd rather die, let's go. Right. <laughs> so his delivery of that is impeccable. Oh, it's my God. so good. Um, but then they pull up another witness into the trial. And Brianna, who is that other witness? None other than June. Woo. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You wanted me to keep going? Yeah, please. Yeah. So they, they pulled June up and they basically start cross-examining her to, you know, to kind of understand, you know, are they are they really in love? Um, and at this, you know, at this point, he's kind of, Farland is asking her all these questions and it's clear that he's very biased towards her. And he's like, you know, do you love him? And she says, well, I, th- I think so. And, you know, he's automatically like, you think so? Um, and it's just this kind of back and forth about that and they also ask her the question of you know would you would you die for him and she says yes absolutely and so then it becomes clear to dr reeves that the one way to really prove this you know prove their love is to get june to act on that basically and so obviously peter's like heck no like you're crazy so they freeze peter to like restrain him and June comes up onto the staircase and they start to like pull away. Um, they're like, all right, she's going to die for you. She's going to take your place. And then the staircase stops because they're like, well, we've seen enough. They're, they're really in love. Uh, so they go back down, you know, Peter and June hug and everything's beautiful and wonderful. The jury rules in Peter's favor. Uh, the judge shows both Reeves and Farland this new lifespan that, you know, they've, they've given for Peter. Reeves says that it's very generous uh Farland you know jokingly is like don't you think that's a little long but then still signs uh and agrees to it I love the the summary on Wikipedia says the two then engage in supportive banter with one another which is so odd like that makes it sound very formal uh don't don't you love the supportive banter on our podcast John uh but then the scene goes to the operating room Uh, where you see Peter, you know, the surgeon says, oh, the operation was a success. And then as you're, you're coming out of this, um, the conductor appears again, because the, the time that Peter was at Reeves house and he showed up, he took this book about chess with him because Peter wakes up and is like, oh, he took that book of chess. It's gone. 
poker chess matches, I guess. And whenever Peter's like coming to at the end of the surgery, you have the scene of the conductor saying, Oh, Peter, you forgot your book and throws it. And it, then you like see it. It's hard to describe the scene. I'm it's, just doing this hand was motions. It's a weird like little instance. I know, I know what you're talking about, but I was like, that kind of felt like out of place. It was weird. Yeah. But I, I grasp to it because like then the book appears in his bag and it's there and they're all happy and the movie ends and he survives. But I like that bit because that gives me a lot of ammunition to say that like it was very literal and real. Like I believe in the interpretation that like all of that stuff in the other world actually happened. Yeah. But I don't know. Like what what was your interpretation? What is your stance on that? I I didn't really decide on one because yeah. I liked not really, you know, having to take it one way because the minute I decided on one, then I couldn't question, Oh, is this really happening? Right. Or is it in his head? You know? And I think the best way to interpret it now that I've watched it all would be literally, mm -hmm. because I think it just has the most power that way. Right. Um, you know, if, if the whole trial itself and stuff was just a, a fever dream mm -hmm. for, for Peter, it doesn't really feel as, as impactful. Right. I, want to acknowledge one last thing that I feel like is a nice last thing to, to leave up on is that shot with Peter and June where you're sort of the camera sort of up on the staircase um, and it's close. It's very close on them, but it's like, Oh, goodbye. And you know what I mean? Like, and like yep. you're very close to their faces, but you're supposed to be from the perspective of like Dr. Reeves mm -hmm. and the other members of the other world. It's super good. It is. It's such a nice shot. And it's very pleasing. It's just, it really sort of sums up their relationship. And I'm just like, oh, look, they totally love each other. Like it's just, right. both actors are doing, they, they don't even do much. You know, they're not talking or anything, but they both just do a really good job standing there. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, like it works. It, it works really well. And that scene was imprinted in my mind mm -hmm. from somewhere before. I do not know where. And I'm not sure if, it, like, I feel like that's just a famous shot. Have you seen it anywhere else? You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't recall seeing it before watching this. Okay. But, I mean, that is, like, whenever you search this movie, like, that's the picture that comes up. Okay. Like, that's the letterboxed header. So that's not unlikely that you've seen it elsewhere. I have two theories on where I've seen that before. Yes. Number one, TCM, where it might have yeah. been on, and, like, yeah. they're like, oh, coming up next. And then they show that image. Or... I think it might have been at that part at the end of the great movie ride where they flash all those shots. You know what I mean? Oh. Rest in peace to great movie ride. Oh my God. I missed the great movie ride. I love you. <laughs> but <laughs> wherever you are in the other world. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I don't know where I saw it. Um, I feel like a lot of other people might recognize it too, which is why I want to mention it. Yeah. Because it's, it's just such a famous it's iconic. image. It's, it's great. Mm -hmm. Brianna, any closing statements on A Matter of Life and Death, your third, sometimes first, sometimes <laughs> maybe fifth favorite movie? It's always in one to five. <laughs> uh, just just watch it. I mean, it's the greatest movie you've probably never seen. Um, I mean, if you're, if you're listening to this podcast, there's a more than likely chance that you have seen it. But even if you haven't, watch it. I mean, it's just pure magic. You're going to love it. I would also recommend the same, as I mentioned, you know, and I, I don't know how much my word, weight my word holds here, but out of all the movies we've done so far, this is probably my favorite. Um, and yeah, I will be sure to 
put the link in the description to this week's episode uh, to, to where you can watch it as well. Um, this is kind of kind of a lighthearted note here. This movie is homed at a YouTube channel called Orphaned Entertainment. So at first, I felt a little stingy with the link <laughs> because Orphaned Entertainment is a public domain podcast. And I didn't know this uh, until at the very beginning of the movie. They're like, yeah, or- Orphan Entertainment is a, bu- is a public domain podcast. And, whoa, here's the movie. And I was like, well, I can't do that. I can't promote the competition. Everyone's just going to think we're ripping off Orphan Entertainment. Well, for the record, here on in May of 2021, I did not know what Orphan Entertainment was until yesterday. So... We're all in the clear. <laughs> we, um, so at first, yeah, I was stingy. But now I think that anyone who's trying to preserve uh, the, the classic films and the older films, yep. hats off to them. They're good so, in our book. Yeah, please, uh, please check out Orphan Entertainment as well and let us know what you think. Let us know what you think about the movie. Uh, feel free to comment on anything on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Casts, Pocket Casts. They're everywhere. You know, you'll find it somewhere. If you're listening, <laughs> you probably already found it. If you're recommending to a friend, they'll find it too. Just give them a platform and it's probably there. With that being said, we're not sure when the next episode will be out, but Brianna and I are going to try to keep them going throughout the summer. Is that so? Absolutely. Okay. Then with that being said, we'll see you in the next episode. <laughs> <laughs>